Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, good, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. And it is getting lighter in the morning. I it noticed is. it. I noticed <laughs> it this morning. Uh, as I left home, there was this glow in the sky, and I thought, ah, it's just after six, and there's a sunrise about to happen, and it was coming up as I was coming down the highway. So I thought, all right, you know, the, the worst of winter's over, and we're on the downward slide, I think, into spring. Yeah. I actually didn't need a torch to get up to my car in the driveway this morning. <laughs> well, see, that, that, that says something. I still needed my torch to go and unlock the chickens because I had to deal with that this morning all before right. the, the light came up because yep. otherwise they'd have been locked in all bloody day. Right. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I still needed a torch to do that this morning at just after six, but it wasn't long before it started to lighten up, and it looks like it's going to be, I think, a pleasant enough day to be out and about and doing things today. Well, we're starting to get some sunshine and things yep. are really going to take off, oh, I yes. tell you. Our spring is well and truly underway. I it mean, is. You only have to wander around the garden and see all of the spring-esque things coming out and doing their stuff. It's just amazing. It's sort of all happening now. So, yes, get out and enjoy it while you can. It'll I, all be over before we know it again. Yes. I finally got to plant a quince tree that I've, I've been holding over, potted up for yeah. ages and not... Finally, I got out there yesterday and planted it, so I'm feeling very good about that. Well, that is a good thing, and actually that's, a, that's an issue. If you're thinking of planting any uh, particularly bare-rooted plants, you're almost out of time. Mm. So uh, you know, if you're thinking of putting in some roses or some fruit trees or whatever, um, time is not on your side at the moment. You need to get your act together, otherwise you potentially, well, certainly if bare-rooted plants, you'll miss your season. Oh, yes. So uh, I'd say you've only got a couple of weeks to go before you'll mm. have to make sure they're out. And anything you buy bare-rooted at the moment will probably already have little white sort of feeder roots starting to move, so you need to treat them gently. And I hope it hasn't been left to dry out. Oh, yes. Because it's, it's, it's getting a bit late. Yeah, yeah. well, if they've, if they've kept them properly... Pitted, yes, they yes, should be fine, should but, be. Uh, but if they get something pulled out next to them and the roots are left sitting out in the open, uh, mm. then you'll have some problems. So, um, yes, yeah, so you haven't got much time if, in fact, you want to do any bare-rooted tree planting, so you need to get onto it. And it's also time for feeding things. I mean, daffodils are out everywhere, yeah. all the narcissus. It's gone crazy. Yeah, well, it's a good time to, to be putting food down, particularly if you're considering mulching shortly, yep. uh, because it's a really good move to get your fertiliser down first, put your mulches over your fertiliser. Uh, that way the fertiliser will go straight down into the root systems of your plants and the nitrogen and things are less likely to be evaporated out into the atmosphere. So it sort of keeps the fertiliser mm. down in there. So, uh, yeah, so if you haven't done it already, it's probably a good thing to be thinking about feeding the garden at the moment. And the soil is still nice and moist, so it's yep. perfect timing for everything. It just means we've all got to get busy. Yeah, the only issue, of course, with mulching now is uh, I always try and get my mulching done even slightly earlier than this if I can. And because all of the things are madly in growth, it's harder to get your mulch in around your bulbs and things as it yep. would have been if you could have got it down before they'd really shot through. But anyhow, yep. uh, can't get everything right. No, I know. <laughs> ah, well, we have to say a very good morning to Virginia. Hey, good morning, Virginia. Good morning, Pam, Stephen, everybody out there. Yes, I left. I worked yesterday. 
I woke up at six and I thought, ah, the sun's coming up. It'll be light when I leave. I got up at quarter to six into the car. I could just see it coming over the horizon. But, of course, I'm driving west. Ah. And I didn't get any light till I got to Lilydale. <laughs> so I was positively disappointed. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> but, yes, the garden, my garden is just a mass of pink and yellow. Mm. It just looks fabulous because mm. all the camellias are out. I've got um, all the daffodils are out. I've got all the veltimias. Some of the South African bulbs are coming up. Mm. And I've got so many camellias, mm. and they're looking just fabulous. And, of course, some of the grevilleas are out, looking wonderful. So it's all very exciting. And the birds are so happy. Yes, they are, aren't they? <laughs> and I've got about, I don't know, eight or nine pseudocydonia because I, I grew them from seed. And they're all now over five foot high and they're all just cut. They've got the brightest pink flower, the yeah. pseudocydonia. Yeah, it's a lovely flower. It's it does, quite it, different to the cydonia, isn't it? It is. Uh, and in fact, you'll be interested and probably pleased to know that for a little while there, the Chinese botanists decided pseudocydonia should be dumped into cydonia. So they put it into cydonia as cydonia sinensis. It looks like it's gone back again. So oh, it's it pseudo again. In, it is pseudo-Sidonia again. <laughs> uh, I thought they were going into Chinomalies or something Well, there like was that. talk of that, uh, but it doesn't look, at least at this stage, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So I'm Excellent. quite pleased about that one because you know, I was starting to get a bit worried. Some of the plant names that are sort of cropping up at the moment are a real stretch for, from a horticultural perspective, not maybe from a taxonomic point of view, but certainly from a horticultural point of view, some of these plants are so different that somehow or another it just doesn't seem quite right to sort of lump them together and yeah. what have you. Um, so, yeah, so things are still in flux, but it looks like it may be pseudocydonia, hopefully at least for the time being. Yes, and I've got three chinomalies yeah. out, all looking beautiful. Oh, they're, they're, I don't know why more people aren't using the chinomalies. They are just such fantastic shrubs. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I was at a friend's place a couple of weeks ago, and some years ago, he'd asked me about hedging, and he lives out in the country, and I said, why don't you put in uh, flowering quince hedges, some chinomaly hedges? And he's, he didn't really know what they were at the time, but he said, well, you know, I'll take your advice. So along the front of his house, he put in a hedge of red, um, and then about halfway down his property, he put in a hedge of white. And this must have been eight or ten years ago when um, Andrew planted these things. And now they're substantial hedges, and they were looking stunning. And so, of course, I took all the credit. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is, it's a great particularly country hedge because you can still keep it quite neat if you want to so it can be quite square and neat but it always looks a little rural it doesn't look too smart and sort no. of suburban looking like some hedging does it will never look like a box no no so i think it's a it's the and absolute it's, ideal for a country and hedge it's something actually. the birds love yeah it's got the right sort of roughness for the yeah. little birds to hide in so yeah, it's yeah. really useful. and of course it flowers in the late winter and if you're in a really cold <laughs> region uh it gives you something cheery uh, at that time of the year uh, the foliage is a nice glossy green. Uh, and I love the white one and the apple blossom colour. The red one's the one I like least of all. Yeah, yeah, mm. I'm, being a bloke, I like the red one. But, um, but uh, there's That's a lot of... just to match your shoes and glasses. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think they're all lovely. The only thing I wouldn't do is put in a mixed hedge. Yes, yes. I, ca I can't imagine that being very attractive. And because they all grow at different rates and, and what have you, and some of them don't get as big as others, you'd never make a neat hedge if you decided to make a, a, a mixed one. At the moment, part of the front of my property looks like it's got a hedge yeah. of this. Ah. It's the white Hardenbergia. 
and it's just gone over. It's so much, so many things. It actually looks, and it's just so white and so mm. fabulous, and it's just gone everywhere. It's wonderful. It's it's called White Mist, and I I got it from Sue's years ago, and I've got another little one called Hardenbergia Pink Shrubby, and it's looking beautiful. And I got that from Sue because they decided they weren't going to do it and they were throwing them out. And I said, anything being thrown out comes my way. Mm. And her boss came round the other day and said, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> said, it came from you about eight years ago. And, and you, you didn't write it. And you didn't grow it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think they've changed their mind. Oh, yeah. right. And, and I, I hope go. they do it because it's really pretty. Yeah. yeah. Although it's funny, you know, because the classical purpley colour of the wild hardened birgia I'm particularly fond of because it's a really vibrant and interesting it's colour. A, it it's is, a wonderful it's purple. Yeah, it's yeah. a really good purple. Uh, and it's interesting because people often have a particularly good colour form of something and then they have to have the other colours just because they can. I mean, obviously that white mist is a beautiful thing, but there's lots of plants that have white flowers, but that purple of the wild hardened birdie is such a good colour mm. and you don't see it in as many flowers. So I always find the colours that you can't get so easily generally the ones that are more precious from my perspective. You know, I don't necessarily want a white delphinium or, you know, anything that can do real rich blue or strong purples or really interesting colours like that. I'd rather stick with the wild form, uh, interestingly mm. enough. But that Hardenbergia is good. I've seen it used in a couple of other gardens and it is lovely. It is moment. just looking fabulous at mm. mine. Just mm. wonderful. And it's, it's with a whole lot of um, weeping acacia, mm. so the, the yellow and the mm. white just mm. falling down <coughs> the bank is exciting. Mm. Good. Mm. Now it's fantastic to have a borrowed landscape with all the, the acacia yes. out everywhere. Yeah. It's stunning. Yeah, it's so yes. exciting, yes. Uh. Oh, well, <laughs> it's all starting again. Spring is definitely here. It's wonderful. I'm sure all the garden listeners um, out there are feeling wonderful too. My garden is wetter, the soil is wetter than it's been in the 16 years I've been there. Yep, yep. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say mine really is good. too. Yeah. Mine's really, really moist. It's fantastic. And I think about those poor New South Welsh people. Oh, yes, up around Orange and up mm. through that area. It's still awful as far as I know, although they got some snow in Orange last week or the week before. Um, well, at least that'll melt. Yeah, and snow's actually quite good from that perspective because it sits on the ground and it melts slowly. It's more inclined to soak in well mm. uh, than sometimes Run heavy rain because mm. uh, it runs off. Yep. So the snow, I think, certainly broke anything that was still dry in my garden that was broken by that little snowfall we had because it, it just sat on the ground for hours and just gently trickled in. Mm. It was good. Now, you two both went to um, a very special uh, couple of talks yesterday. Oh, yes. Quick report back. Oh, yes. Well, Oren Perry uh, from Israel was up at the community centre at Alinda uh, doing two talks. Uh, uh, of course, they had a plant sale table, which we all had to go rushing around and check out. And I don't think many people left without some plants. Even I bought a few things that I didn't really need. <laughs> um, and they had a ballot for uh, yellow-flowered uh, galanthus, which really means a snowdrop that has yellow spots instead of green spots. So I don't think it, I don't see them as yellow particularly. But anyhow, they call them the yellow snowdrops. They had a ballot for those because they only had a few of them. So you had to get your name drawn out uh, so that you could then go and spend money and buy one. Uh, and my name came out of the hat first. Good heavens. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I was not pleased. I didn't. There was twenty 
Mm. Right, 20 for sale, yeah. and I didn't get called in the 20. Although, having said that, there were quite a lot of people in the hall, so, you know... There were. You know, I, there was meant to be 75, and yeah. I think there was easily 75, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, so, maybe more. Yeah. yeah, so Oren's first talk was on bulbs of the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. So, uh, and, of course, he comes from Israel, so it's in the midst of his sort of area, um, and he showed us images of some amazing bulbs that... Uh, We'll probably never see, and if we do, we'll never be able to grow. Uh, plus, some that were quite hardy and easy to grow. Um, and then we stopped for afternoon tea, which was sumptuous. It wasn't as <laughs> fabulous. Uh, they really, you know, pulled out all stops. There was so much food. It's, uh, the, it's the Ferny Creek mob, and they right. really know how to do. Yeah, although it isn't up strictly up. the Ferny Creek mob. It's the Alpine Garden Society. You've got to be careful you get them <laughs> right, because it is a separate identity, although a lot of the members are members of both. Uh, and then, of course, he did another talk in the afternoon, because Oren's really an interesting character, because he's, uh, he's a nurseryman, a seed collector, um, a speaker, uh, and also a tour leader. And, so, and a bit of a scientist. Yes, he? yeah, mm. he is, and he's a really interesting character. So his second talk was about uh, plants of chilli, because he takes tours there on a semi-regular basis. So he did a, 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 a illustrated talk about the plants of Chile and showed us a whole lot of interesting plants, some of which I've seen in the wild. Um, He showed some pictures of the national park that I got bogged in and stuck all night. (laughs) Um, uh, So it brought back all sorts of memories for me. Um, And, yeah, so we had a lovely lovely afternoon and then some of us then went out and had um, uh, dinner at Seasons Cafe at Cloud Hill. Oh, right. Um, uh, Lovely lady up there open specially for us. It's not normally open on a Saturday night. No, I was going to say. Uh, And so um, those of us who felt uh, we wanted to continue enjoying ourselves went off and had dinner there. And then I tootled home. I think I got home about quarter to 11 last night. Goodness me. Yeah, so big day yesterday. Right. Uh, I also called in to see my friend Peter Teese at Yumina Rare Plants. Uh Uh-huh. Had the van half full before I even got to the community <laughs> centre. And, uh, and he was getting plants for that, for the sale. We're doing the oh auction yes. on Thursday. Now, this is right. a segue. We probably should mention that. Yes, Thursday is the big uh, big night out for the people who are involved with Plant Trust. Uh It's sneakily our AGM as well, but that goes through pretty quickly and we get that out of the way fast. But anybody who's been along to um, our big night uh, will know that we have the best plant auction. It's great fun. So we have plants that are donated by uh, collection holders and friends in the nursery industry um, that uh, uh, you can come in and you grab yourself a glass of wine, nice piece of cheese on a biscuit, um, go for a walk around, look at all the plants. We quickly whip through the uh, AGM bit of it, uh, and then we do the big plant auction, which is always great fun, and it's one of the major fundraisers for Plant Trust. And uh, you may well find that plant you didn't know you needed, uh, and that's our wicked plan. Yes, and I stopped at Craig's and got two trays of things from Craig for the sale because he's always, Gentiana Nursery always gives us stuff, which is wonderful. And, of course, Craig gives us things that are unusual, because yes. that's what we want. We yes. don't want a tray of thyme. No, no. exactly. We <laughs> want plants that are, because so many of our, our members are plant collectors. Mm. Yeah. So, so we want yeah, so to tease them with something interesting. Now, so we have mentioned this upcoming event before, and I think the last time we mentioned it, we were talking about the venue. Now, the venue isn't exactly what I think we said it was last time. That's right. It's oh. been a change. So it's actually going to be at Mueller Hall in the Herbarium. Oh, right. Uh, and not in Domain House. Okay. Uh, so if you're coming down Birdwood Avenue, you'll see the Herbarium on the left-hand side if you're coming from the city, um, and you'll need to find 
find some parking around there somewhere, uh, and it will be in the Mueller Hall, so uh, sort of 6.30-ish. It's 6.30, and the parking mm. from 6.30 on is unmarked, so you can park anywhere. Mm. Ah, mm. Well, okay. as long as it's on the edge of the road. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, so it should be a great fun night. Uh, people are more than welcome to come along. Uh, there's no cost involved in... Uh, coming to the evening, uh, but one hopes that if you haven't been to one of our events before, you might actually join up as a member of Plant Trust uh, and help support us in our uh, endeavours. And if you've got a collection, come and register it. Yes, it would be nice to get some more registered collections on the move as well. Mm. So, uh, but we're, we're, look, we're happy to have people at any level. I mean, collection holders are fantastic, and the more we get of those, the better. But people can support the organisation just by being a member, uh, and you can then come along to things like our auctions and our, uh, uh, our day trips, and occasionally we even have a weekend trip. Uh, you get our newsletter, which always has interesting articles and things in it as well. Um, so you get some benefits from being a member even if you're not a collection holder. So, and yeah. if you look at our committee, where I mean, Stephen's the president and he's got three collections? Four. Four collections? Um, yes. Nothing succeeds like excess. Um, yeah, so I've got and three I'm, collections at home and one at the nursery. And I'm secretary and I've got no collections because to have a collection you've got to be a little bit ordered. And I'm, yeah, Virginia I'm not. says she's not. <laughs> Oh, dear. But, yeah, so it's a, it's a good organisation and I think uh, de- certainly deserves support, particularly considering that the palette of plants we're being offered through the nursery industry these days is getting smaller it and is. smaller. Yes. Um, and, of course, the big barns have a very limited range of things that they offer. Yep. Um, and so um, if we want to keep the botanical diversity that we have within the country, then we've got to actually start physically protecting the plant material because if we lose something, uh, if it's something that's an overseas cultivar, we probably won't be able to bring it back into the country because it's getting very bureaucratic and very expensive to go through the processes. Mm. And, of course, it's, if it's an Australian cultivar, something that we've bred here and we lose it, there's a good chance it never went overseas, and so that's the end. Mm. So, you know, so it's really important that we have these collections um, uh, registered so that we know where this plant material is, so that if somebody wants something for breeding or needs something for propagating um, uh, or somebody's doing some research on the genus or whatever, uh, the plant material is still there. Uh, and, of course, if the nursery industry suddenly realises that they're losing it, you know, they haven't got something that they should be growing, um, then we know where the plants are so that it can come back into cultivation again, mm. uh, which I think is important because plants, like anything else in life, tend to go through fashions. And so things stop being grown because the nursery industry doesn't sell enough of them. And then sometime along the track, people want it again. And, and if it's course, not out there... And, of course, one of the real problems with the nursery industry now is that we've got so quick wanting immediate response visually... So if it's something that doesn't look good in a pot, oh, and there's God, so yes. many things that don't look good in the pot, they're right. absolutely wonderful in the garden. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And those are the ones that we tend yeah. to find disappear because yeah. they don't sell as well. Yep. Yeah. Yes, yep. yes, it's only people who are good talkers uh, in the nursery industry that can still sell something that's not flowery in a six-inch pot. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope I'm one of them. Uh, yeah, so anyhow, so Plant Trust's big night out is this coming Thursday at Mueller Hall uh, at the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. So we'd love to see a few more faces at the meeting. Uh, apart from anything else, the more people that are there, the easier it is for a certain auctioneer, um, i.e. me, uh, to sell plants because if you, the 
more people you've got in the room, the easier it is to push those things along. Mm. So uh, please come along. Uh, bring lots of cash. <laughs> so what time should people get there? Oh, they need to be there around about 6.30. I mean, we don't actually start the auction till substantially later, but that gives people... Quarter, a ch- quarter past seven, we hope to get the yeah. auction over. I mean, start the auction. Yep. Yeah, okay. So, But if they're there at half past six, they can, they can get some refreshments. And mingle. And mingle. Look at the plants that are on offer so that they can see what things they might particularly like to sort of bid for um, and so it gives you that sort of sense of a relaxed atmosphere so that um, you're lulled into a false sense of security. Yesterday at at the talk um, I don't know, I was talking I think I was talking about Thursday coming up and I was talking to a woman I didn't know and she said oh my mother paid the highest price for any plant at the the, um, plant trust (laughs) auction many years ago. Yes, occasionally oh, things go nuts, which is yeah, which is great as far as I'm concerned. It sounds like it still rankles with her. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the problem is that Mum's gone and the house has been sold, and she's oh, worried no. about what things haven't been rescued before oh, the bulldozers. Oh, gone. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's happening everywhere. Yeah. It's really sad. I should ask Stephen: Is it cash only? Uh, yes, we don't have an FPOS machine or anything yep. like that. So, I mean, if it's somebody we know, we'd probably accept a check. Yep. Um, and bank that. I wouldn't have an issue with that. But, yes, I think cash is probably the simplest and easiest way to deal with this. So, yes, bring plenty of cash. There will also be a raffle, so you can throw more money at that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's it's one of our big major fundraisers for the year, so we'd like it to be a success. Yeah, absolutely. And it is fun. Mm. Yeah, good. Which it's got to be. Thing. Yes. yes it's, it's the important bit. Okay, community announcements. Uh, firstly, a reminder, today is the last day... Uh, Am I right or am I wrong? Let me just double check. No, that one has gone. The one I need to remind people about is that um, uh, August uh, 23rd to the 25th, so 25th is the last day. That's the one I was wanting to refer to. Last day of the Orchid Society, Council of Victoria, with their Melbourne Orchid Spectacular. Now, this is taking place at KCC Park, which is at 655 Western Port Highway in Skye. Uh, It's open from 9 through till 4. Entry, adults $10, children under 15 free. Uh, There'll be over 25 orchid displays, large sales uh, with many different orchids and orchid accessories, photography and art competition, potting demonstrations, etc. So that's uh, today if you want to catch up with that. Uh, KCC Park, 655 Western Port Highway in Skye. Now, coming up, <coughs> uh, I was mentioning uh, Narcissus earlier. It's the 63rd Leongatha Daffodil and Floral Show coming up August 31st, running through till September the 1st. Now, the venue there is the Memorial Hall in Leongatha. Times are Friday, uh, 1.30 till 5.00. Uh, Saturday 9am till 6pm and Sunday 9am till 4pm. Entry is $5, children free. And uh, if you'd like more information, you can contact Sue on 5668 6334. That's 5668 all right, and uh, one more, September 7th and 8th, which uh, it sounds a long way away, but it's not. No, it uh, isn't. <laughs> Kyneton Horticultural Society have got their big flower show on. 
This is at the Kyneton Showgrounds, Watts Pavilion. Times Saturday 1 till 5, Sunday 10 till 4.30. Entry is free. It's in its 125th year. Yeah, now, that's fantastic. The Kyneton Club is one of our really old ones. Uh, I think possibly Box Hill and um, I think Ballarat are both older, uh, but not by a, by a big stretch. And I guess the Royal Horticultural Society of Victoria is the oldest, I mm. think. So, yeah, so there's a surprising number of clubs that have, have gone over the century uh, mm. in Victoria, which is very impressive when you it think is. about it. Fantastic. Yeah, Mount Macedon's heading towards its 100th. Yeah. Uh, I think that's next year or the year after. Okay. Uh, so we're, we're getting close. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, that reminds me, I better start planning for that. <laughs> we'll have to make some sort of effort uh, for our 100th when it comes around. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, it's good to see Garden Club still flourishing. Yeah. Um, I mean, some have struggled. It's uh, People are time poor these days. But what a fabulous fund of information a Garden Club is. If, you, if you're in an area that you've just moved into, see if you can find the local Garden Club because, they, you know, you've got all that acquired knowledge that's locally and regionally ha- held by people who are just itching and to impart that information. Our garden club, the Upper Yarra Valley Garden Club, which we're having an, a weekend at the end of October, which I'll announce closer to it, but it's, it's fantastic. It's a really big garden club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really, when you move into an area and you don't know anyone, if you don't have a dog, a child, or want to belong to a church... How do you meet people? Yeah, yes. the garden club is an ideal Once way. Once joining a political party was an option, but not really anymore. No. So, and I mean, I'm not going to church. My daughter's 28, so she's no use. And I, and <laughs> you I no can't longer put have her a in a pram. <laughs> <laughs> yes. so, so a garden club is a fantastic way to meet. When I came back from, from Britain, you know, I hadn't lived in Melbourne for 30 years. And so I knew my family. And a handful of friends still, but they are all at the height of their careers and, you know, yeah. working so busy. busy. people. Yeah. And yes, yeah. yes. So Garden Club was a brilliant way to meet yeah. people. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I think people sort of forget about the, the assets that a Garden Club can offer. I mean, many of them also have good libraries. I know ours certainly does. So you've got books you can borrow. Uh, they have guest speakers on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of information being imparted. Uh, some of them have a particularly good supper. <laughs> I reckon ours is worth joining just for the supper. <laughs> Uh, we've got a couple of ladies who make the best slices. Um, so, and you do, you, and, and you can mix with a whole group of people because gardening is one of those wonderful levelers. Um, and so, you know, in our club, certainly we've got rank amateurs right through to professional horticulturalists. Uh, we're, we're fortunate. We've got some quite young couples and young people in mm. our organisation as well as the, the more elderly. People like I'm Greg who's been doing it since he was... 13 or yeah, younger? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and it is, it's a fabulous way of, um, of mingling with your society. And if it's a good active garden club that's sort of doing stuff, there's, there's always sort of events and things going on as well. So, you know, they might be going out for a bus trip or they might be running the flower show that we tend to be uh, regularly promoting for different clubs and societies. Um, and it's surprising how much fun all those things can be to get involved with. Mm-hmm. I mean, I push our members all the time about our little competitive flower show we have up at Mount Macedon and every time somebody new enters in the flower show they get such a kick out of it that they stick with it but to get them to do it the first time is often really oh I don't understand it or it all seems too difficult or or whatever and I say look at the end of the day it's not about necessarily winning a sash or a trophy of some sort or another it's just being involved Um, and once they get the hang of it it can become slightly addictive 
<laughs> and I know several members who, you know, can't wait for the competitive flower show to come around so that they can enter their best day or oh, rose yeah. or gladiator. Oh, they're or, the ones what? I tend to steer clear of. Yeah. Oh, look, they're fun. Um, and I certainly particularly like the vegetable sections in the, in the flower shows. I think they're great fun. And, of course, in, in a lot of them too, they encourage children to enter children's sections. So mm. we have quite a large children's section in our flower show where the kids make a, a novelty out of things that grow or uh, find the biggest gum leaf or do a miniature arrangement in an egg cup or, you know, all that sort of stuff. And that's, that's where I started in horticulture mm, when exactly. I was a 10-year-old. Yeah. Um, I was entering in the, in the... In fact, I was probably about eight when I first entered uh, in the Mount Macedon Horticultural Society Flower Show with a little tray garden, I think I remember, uh, that I'd made up with sand and rocks and moss and little twigs and things. Um, and I was hooked. So, you know, so... In fact, if you do join a garden club and you've got children, don't ignore the fact that the children might get something out of it too. Mm. Um, as long as they behave reasonably well at meetings and don't shuffle and make lots of noise, uh, you'll be surprised how often children will engage and um, you could have set them off on a lifetime's enjoyment of, of horticulture, which would be lovely to see. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, I must get on with some more announcements because we have got a few to get through. <laughs> Spring <Springsteen. laughs> It is. That's exactly right. We always know when it's... Coming up. Uh, so the next uh, guided walk down at Geelong Botanic Gardens comes up on Sunday the 1st of September. Uh, it's plants from China. It's uh, wandering around Geelong Botanic Gardens looking at um, all the uh, amazing uh, plants that have come from a, a Chinese horticultural background. Uh, now you meet the guide at the steps, Geelong Botanic Gardens steps at 2 o'clock and uh, entry is by a gold coin donation. Now, coming up on the 7th of September, uh, there's a, an Australian native plant sale hosted by uh, Australian Plant Society um, Wilson Park, that's in Berwick, and City of Casey Garden Expo. Now, 9 o'clock through till 3 o'clock, gold coin entry, and, it, of course, it's taking place at Wilson Botanic Park, which is at 668 Princes Highway in Berwick. There'll be a wide range of native plants, plus raffles, demonstrations, food and entertainment. Uh, now, of course, also our good friends, we've been talking about them, uh, Fernie Creek Horticultural Society, have got their spring show coming up 7th and 8th of September. And uh, on the uh, Saturday, it will be 12 noon till 4 on the Sunday, 10 till 4, uh, and uh, camellias will be a highlight, surprise, surprise, <laughs> but there will be all sorts of flowers from late winter to early spring, as one would expect. Entry to the show is still $5. Children under 16 are free, and, of course, the show is held in the Horticultural Hall within the Fernie Creek Ornamental Gardens. That's at 100 Hilton Road East, Sassafras, Parking is free within the gardens and there are disabled spots near the hall. There'll be two plant stores selling a good range of plants, including some hard-to-get varieties. The cut flower stall and craft stall will be operating. Light meals, drinks will be available during the weekend, as will a sausage sizzle. Oh, sausage sizzle. <laughs> don't tell Virginia. <laughs> Weather permitting, there'll be regular guided garden walks and visitors can bring a picnic to have in the gardens if they would like. Now, also coming up, uh, that is a good date, Friday the 13th of September, uh, there's going to be a sustainability forum. 
Now, this is being hosted by Encouraging Women in Horticulture, and uh, it's all about turning our waste into resources. Now, the speakers, Erin Rhodes, will be talking about... uh, She's a reduced waste advocate and author of Waste Not Books. Kelvin Ag is from Reckless, which is recycled plastic products. Uh, and uh, Jason Wunderlich from Just Eco Timber, recycled and sustain- sustainable timber products. And the facilitator will be Sally Williams, former Brand Power presenter, now sustainability advocate. Now, there's a whole, uh, as I say, it's, it's a whole uh, forum. Starts at 10 o'clock, uh, runs through till 2.30. Light refreshments and lunch are included. It's taking place at Ceres Van Ray Centre, which is at the Ceres Community Environment Park in Brunswick East. Uh, if you're a member of Encouraging Women in Horticulture, $75. Non-members, $85. Student members $50 and student non-members $60 and uh, spaces are limited so book early uh, and at, you do need to RSVP and payment by the 6th of September and you can do that by going to events at ewha.com.au so that's events at ewha.com.au uh, Just a few more I should quickly get through. There's an Australian Plants Expo coming up. This is a, a regular annual event that takes place in Eltham, uh, 14th to the 15th of September, 10 o'clock through to 4 o'clock on both days. It's at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, which is at 801 Main Road in Eltham. Adults $5, concession $4, children are free, and uh, it's... Uh, it's a, just a fantastic show. The, um, the range of native uh, plants in full flower is stunning, mm. absolutely stunning for that one. I really do recommend that show to anyone who's interested in Australian native plants. And finally, the last one, uh, the Clivia Expo is coming up. This is being presented by Melbourne Clivia Group. Saturday, 21st of September, one day only, 10 through till 4. There'll be displays, demonstrations and sales. Uh, It's being held at the Mount Waverley Community Centre. Surprise, surprise. Surprise. (laughs) What a great centre, though. It's a fabulous venue. It It is. really is. Brilliant venue. Yes, so excellent. Uh, 47 Miller Crescent, Mount Waverley, of course, right opposite the Mount Waverley Railway Station. $5 entry, $4 for seniors card holders, and if you want more inquiries on that one, 0477-134-863. It's high time I got to our first caller, and we have uh, Jason online. Good morning, Jason. Jason, are you there? Good morning. Hello, Jason. He's gone, I think. No, I'm afraid we've lost him. Okay, Jason, do do call back. Yeah. Okay. All right. Did you see the garden show on Friday night? Yes, I did. Bob and Tot's garden was Which in Which is it. coming up. And that's coming up in two weeks. That's Open right. Open garden scheme. Yes. 
which and it's such a wonderful garden. The corriers that he has got is just, mm. and now a lot of them will be on in flower at the moment. And it's a stunning garden. The whole garden is virtually full of things that Bob's propagated himself from cousins, which is amazing. Yeah, we amazing. in the nursery industry hate people like that. <laughs> <laughs> he plants so, for free. Yes. <laughs> He's so clever. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, gosh, what a wonderful couple. They're both mm. so dedicated to plants and the growing of Australian natives. So um, an excellent garden to see. Mm. And I will remind li- all listeners uh, next week as well mm. to uh, get up there if you haven't got anything else planned for that weekend because mm. fantastic. Okay. Um, now, it looks like we might have... No, we don't have Jason back. We'll try um, Doug in Heathmont. Are you there, Doug? Yes. Good. Good Go ahead. Good morning, all there. Thoroughly enjoy your gardening program. My wife's a gardener, but I enjoy it as well. Oh, but good. I have a quick question. I've I've got some um, maple trees in my backyard, and I've just put in a sun tracking solar system. And one of the tra- maple trees I've had cut really right back to the trunk, mm-hmm. and the the tree surgeons actually cut the top straight off, well, more or less square or flat. And I'm just wondering whether I should seal that off because I'm hoping it will shoot again. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But if I'm sort of just hoping it will shoot again and I'm just wondering whether I should seal the actual end of the trunk. No. No? No. Uh, Current thinking is that all those sort of um, sealants that were being used for ages and ages are actually counterproductive. Oh, right. Um, Okay. Uh, what you want the tree to do is to create callus tissue that's going to eventually hopefully grow over and seal off the cut on its own. But those sort of bitumous black um, paints that they were using uh, uh, as wound dressings uh, actually discourage the callus tissue. And so you're better to allow it to breathe. And it's like if you put a Band-Aid over something, it goes all soft and gooby underneath. Well, you don't want to to do the same thing to your tree. So the only thing I would be worried about is if it's been cut dead flat, um, I would make sure that water doesn't just sit on the top of that branch. Well, that's what I think. Yeah. I was just so wondering if, it, even if I put bit. a steel cap on it or no, something. No, no, like I wouldn't it. do that. If, is it possible to angle the cut again? Well, that's what I was going to suggest. The other way is to actually angle it. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I just angle the cut. That uh, way the rain runs off. It's a trunk. It's about, oh, it's about sort of 15, 18 inches in diameter. Yeah, but still that would be the way to go is just to yeah. angle the cut um, yeah. uh, because if you put, say, something like a metal lid over it, that'll be a great place for earwigs and things yeah, to yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah so that. I wouldn't okay. do that either. I think it's, again, it's almost like putting a Band-Aid over it. So yeah. okay. you better All just right. let the air get in, the sun get in, and let the callus tissue form. And, and I would suggest, uh, I'm, I don't know which maple it is, but most maples will shoot quite well from even... Well, all the other cuts. ones that I've had cut back over the years and have been damaged in the wind or anything like that, though, they're actually... Never, <laughs> it hasn't slowed them yeah. down, let me put Yeah, so I, my gut feeling is this tree will recuperate. Well, I'm hoping it mm. does, too, because... Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll just knock the top off on a bit of an yeah, angle. Yeah, just get an angle on it just so that water yeah. runs off, and, and that's about all I would do to it. Good, Stephen. Thank you very much, and thank you all, Pam. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Ah, that number, if you'd like to join us this morning, we'd love to hear from you, 94190155. We've got Stephen and Virginia in the studio this morning, so we'd love to have a chat, 94190155.
Stephen, let's start on a plan. All right. Uh, now, I have uh, already put these... Well, I'm assuming they're up on Facebook already. I did send I'm sure my, they will be. Yeah, I sent my images off to Liz actually on Friday afternoon oh, wow. because I was heading off to the Dandenongs yesterday, so obviously I wasn't going to have time to do it then. Uh, and in fact, I got a little message back from her saying thank you for the early um, <laughs> presentation of your images. So I think she actually appreciated that. Oh, which good. Is, which okay. is good. Um, so they're up there on, on Facebook now. Uh, what I would like to talk, start the talk about is a bulb from Chile, um, which is something of a holy grail of bulbs. Uh, it's commonly known as the blue Chilean crocus. Uh, it's not actually a crocus, in fact, not even closely related to a crocus, but it does sort of look like a blue crocus. Okay. And it's a holy grail for lots of reasons. One is that at one point it was thought to be extinct in the wild. Uh, and over-collecting was one of the uh, reasons given for it disappearing. It's turned out in more recent years that it wasn't extinct in the wild. It was just extinct in one place where they knew where it was and they'd collected it. Uh, but they found um, stands of it in other parts of the Andes Mountains. So I hope they haven't told too many people. Yeah, well, yes. so do I. Although now it's being grown in cultivation reasonably well, I'd be a little surprised if huge amounts of it were being dug out of the wild anymore because it is sort of available. It's still a very expensive bulb to buy, because it multiplies quite slowly. But I remember when I first started selling it about 30 years ago, um, I was charging back then $40 a bulb. And I think at about the same time in England, they were charging £40 a bulb for it. So it was a very expensive bulb to buy. Uh, in comparison, it's substantially cheaper, because I now sell it for about $28 a bulb. Um, and it is the most, well, in the, in the straight wild form, the most beautiful electric blue. Oh, it uh, is a fabulous blue. Wow. It is a most remarkable shade of blue. <clears throat> it has a sort of a white veining down in towards the centre of the flower, which varies a little bit depending on which seedling you end up with. Um, it's only a small bulb. It's, it's probably, in the old measurements, probably only about an inch and a half across in flower, about three inches high. Um, you tend to get more than one flower per plant. There's, in this plant, there's another flower coming up from below the, the first one. Um, and it's the most incredible bulb. And if you can end up with a pot full of it, as we saw yesterday at um, uh, the Alinda Community Hall, um, the, uh, it can be a stunningly beautiful thing. And I've got two forms of it. So there's the, the straight form, which is known as Tecophilia cyanocrocus, meaning sort of blue crocus. Uh, there is a form of it called Lechlentii, which is also blue, but the whole centre of the flower basically is pure white. So you've got this very strong white and blue combination. Um, so Lechlentii is just a, a subspecies or form of uh, the straight form. And there's also another form of it out there. There's three forms of it that show up in cultivation. I didn't bring the third one, although I do have it, uh, called Violacea, which is a very dark velvety purple. Um, which is gorgeous as well. And well, if you have all three, as you do, do they cross? There is always the possibility they will cross. So if you get seed from them and you've got all three growing together, you could, in fact, end up with a cross. And, in fact, somebody was saying yesterday there's somebody out there trying to develop the pure white one. And I think, what on earth what for? for? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I no. mean, there's so many white crocuses and white other small bulbs. Stay with the blue. And the blue is so stunning. Yes, that blue is absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, it is. It's a remarkable shade of blue. Uh, now, they're small. They're always at risk because they're small and they spend a lot of time underground. So like all small bulbs, they're more at risk probably from you sticking a fork through them or something like that than anything else. When are they underground? 
They're underground for the whole summer autumn. Which makes them perfect because they get through our summer. Well, they can, but the th- issue with them is they like a dry summer, but they like a cool, dry summer because they oh, come from the oh. Andes. So if you're going to grow tecophilia, the trick is to probably pot grow it, uh, and then when it dies down in the spring... Keep your pots in a shady, dry spot so that they're not getting a lot of light on them and so they're not warming up too much. And if you can do that, keep them dry and coolish. I mean, they don't have to be refrigerated or anything, but as long as they're not hot and dry, uh, then they're very growable. I mean, I've got them from uh, different collectors around Melbourne suburbs who are growing them perfectly well, so there's no real reason why you can't grow them. Uh, I guess the big problem with them is because they're an expensive bulb to buy, uh, so there's an investment in, in, in this thing. And because it's such a holy grail and it's rare and all those things, people are nervous about it. And I think they might, in fact, be inclined to over look after them. Mm. And overwater them. And yes, and very often overwater them. Uh, they're perfectly happy to deal with the natural rain patterns that we have here. So they'll start coming up with the first autumn rains, uh, or at least the roots will be activating. By midwinter, you'll have lots of green leaves up. And then as you come into the late winter, early spring, they'll come into flower. As soon as we start getting our first warm days in October, early November, uh, they'll start to yellow off. As soon as they start showing signs of yellowing, you don't want to keep them damp after that point. You just let them dry right out. uh, And then they'll go into their dormancy. But remember, like most small bulbs, they will expend the nutrients in potting mix over the growing season quite well and so I generally suggest that you do repot them every year Mm -hmm. in some fresh potting mix give them a bit of slow release fertilizer perhaps give them a bit of liquid feeding when they're actively in growth the tecophilias seem to like a little bit of tucker Um, and they you know if you buy one you know there's a good chance you'll have one with two offsets next year the following year you'll have three flowering size ones with probably four or five offsets. So over a period of several years, you can build up quite a nice pot full of them. Mm. Uh, and they certainly do look at their best if they're grown en masse in a, yes, a decent-sized yes. pot. They don't need to be deep pots, so you can have sort of a, uh, a shallowish terracotta pot that you have filled with tecophilias. Sit uh, it on the table outside. Yeah, enjoy yeah. it on the, on the barbecue table while it's in flower. Uh, the other advantage is that slugs and snails can't get at them so easily to eat the leaves and flowers, exactly. which is something that can happen with tecophilia. Yep. So they are at risk from mollusks. Um, and, um, yeah, so if you've got a nice pot of them sitting up on a table somewhere, you can get great pleasure out of them for about four to five weeks, maybe a little longer. Um, and as I said, there's three different cultivars to, or three different forms of Tecophilia cyanocrocus to, to collect. And there is a third, uh, second species, uh, Tecophilia violiflora, which is a little bit confusing, uh, which has smaller flowers in a branched umbel, and I have as yet to see that one in the flesh. So uh, I had some bulbs of it at one stage, which I ended up throwing away because they just seemed to be a non-flowering clone. I had it for years, oh. and it never flowered. And right. I thought in the end, you know, after about 10 years of effort, I thought this is enough. And in fact, we were discussing it yesterday amongst a few of us sort of bulb nuts that were at the meeting yesterday. And somebody has flowered it, and they raised it from seed they got from overseas. And we're actually of the opinion, actually, that most of the stock that had been getting around here had all come vegetatively from the first original stock. And so we all ended up with non-flowering clones. Right. 
And so, yeah, so hopefully the other species will show up. I don't think it's as showy as, as Cyanocrocus, but it would be nice to have the fourth one. Mm. <laughs> Round just, out the collection. You can hold the national exactly. collection. Yeah, that's right. You could have the whole collection and then you could register it with Plant Trust. Uh, so I just think the Tecophilia is gorgeous things, and I do look forward to them each year. Um, they just are such an incredibly beautiful thing, and I can understand why. Uh, when they were discovered that uh, particularly back in the days when they didn't sort of think about the possibility of things becoming extinct, you know, because Mm. nature was this boundless resource, um, uh, why they went out there and raped and pillaged the Andes to bring this thing back into cultivation. Uh, And I remember reading an article in an old magazine I'd got hold of that was back in the 1920s or maybe even earlier, where somebody took a picture, and it was in black and white, of course, so all the magazines and things in those days didn't have colour photos in it, but they had a border of tecophilias in a garden somewhere in England that looked to be about a foot wide wow. and about 20 Goodness. feet long, and wow. it was just this sheet of blue wow. in black and white. <laughs> but, you know, just to see that sort of quantity of bulbs, and one's got to wonder how they ended up with that many bulbs if it wasn't wild collected, in fact. Yeah, it must then. have been, yeah. Yeah, so they must have got a great shipment of the damn things and planted them out. And one wonders what happened to them in later years. Mm. They probably all faded out and disappeared, unfortunately. Because uh, they are a bulb that's so small and precious that unless you're prepared to put a little effort into keeping it, and I still maintain pot growing is the best way to deal with this plant, um, then it would be easy to lose. Yep. Uh, well, I reckon I was probably the only person at the meeting yesterday that didn't go in and buy any of these alpine bulbs. Yeah. And it's because my garden's so big mm. that little things yeah. get Just lost, disappear. Yep. Mm. And yeah. I haven't, I'm not yet, well, this is the thing about not being very organised, I'm not yet in a position where I, I can make sure, you know, I really have to think about you need an area. Yes. You need, uh, you need to set aside a bulb area, yeah. which is like very Stephen's done, under yeah. gravel, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes. Yeah, so I've got two rock gardens now where I put most of my small bulbs in. Uh, one of them is a semi-shaded one, so I have all the cyclamen and some of the little narcissus, the anemones, you know, all those sorts of things that will tolerate a bit of shade. And, and those plants are, uh, are there under gravel, so I know they're there, and I just do gentle hand weeding of anything that comes up mm. through the gravel. And the other one, which I call the Oxalarium, because there's a lot of oxalis in it, <laughs> uh, purposefully planted oxalis, I might add, uh, uh, it gets all the winter sun. So it's ideal for things like the small babianas, the oxalises, the little gladiolis, um, all those sort of lovely little South African bulbs. And I never water it. Uh, in fact, this year I was starting to get a bit nervous because we didn't get the rains in the autumn until exceedingly late. We're not getting autumn rains. No, it no. doesn't seem to happen much anymore. Uh, I was almost getting to the point where I was going to start artificially irrigating to get some of these things moving because they just stayed dormant. Yep. And I knew they were there. I wasn't worried about losing the plants, but I thought the blasted things aren't even going to get a season unless they get some moisture. But I didn't in the end water it, uh, and they did come up and do their thing, but everything was fractionally later than normal yep. uh, but you know they're plants that are actually very very aligned to the sort of climates and, and weather patterns we have and they cope uh, and it's surprising how well they can one of the things I found fascinating yesterday was the they, uh, there was a world map up showing where bulbs grow mm. and, Okay. and although it's totally logical mm. that they're in a band in a temperate band in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere Right. So they're in California and they're in one, one bit of Chile. They're in Australia and a bit of New Zealand. They're in the Mediterranean. Yeah. You know. But it was, it was really interesting. And, 
And I presume what he was doing in illustrating that was only illustrating wild things because Melbourne and all of us weren't included in his map, Mm. which I presume we have wild bulbs in Australia from sort of... Mainly down in that, across to yes, in that sort of southern Western Australian area is sort of the same Mediterranean style of climate, as is the southern part of South Africa, as is central Chile, Um, and yeah, all those regions have plants that are adapted to the same sort of climatic zone. So sometimes it's not about buying plants that are native to your area necessarily. It's buying plants that are native to a similar climatic zone, yes. yep. um, which is often the, the indicator of whether they'll do well or not. Um, and, in fact, that's, you know, if you want to import the next weed, you'll find that also in an exactly the same sort of climatic zone as we live in uh, because the plant will not only be adapted to our climate, but it will leave its pests behind back home. Uh, and so that's how they beca- often become weedy in a different Country. Mm, like the yellow oxalis, which yes, comes from South Africa. Yeah, oxalis yeah. pescapri <laughs> loves us because our climate is so like the one that it has at home. But I don't know what lives off it there. I mean, it could be something that baboons dig the bulbs up or whatever. It's not in vast quantities in its natural habitat. Mm. It's just it, just growing there, you know, but it's not sheets of it like we get here all along the sides of the freeways and up through the wine belt in Rutherglen and all over the place where you get these sheets of Oxalis pescapri. It's not like that in the wild. So there's obviously something that keeps it in check yep. in the wild, yep. which we didn't import, which is possibly a good thing because we didn't necessarily need baboons. No, we don't. Uh, <laughs> or whatever it is. It may not be baboons, but you know, it could be something like that. So, yes. And it's the same with our eucalyptuses. If you go to some parts of the world, you'll see gum trees growing like the clappers um, at, at rates that are completely beyond what we would normally yes. expect here. Yes. Uh, and their leaves are always clean. There's no lerps. There's no borers. There's no, no, no koalas. Um, um, you know, so none of the natural predators of eucalypts are on these trees in mm. other countries, and hence in some places they've gone completely feral. Yes, mm. they're really weedy. Yeah, mm. yeah, Madagascar's full of them. Oh, yeah. Um, and South Africa is struggling with eucalypt as well because they planted it a lot for reforestation, and of course because it's deep rooted, uh, it's it's drying up their water tables, mm. um, and so you know they're they're desperately trying to get rid of our eucalypts out of some of their areas over there. So yeah, so. If you're going to grow plants that you want to grow easily, yes, plants from a similar climatic zone are the way to go, uh, but they can also be the ones that turn weedy as well. Agapanthus. Yeah, agapanthus is a good example. Mm. And, and look, plants from the Western Australian sand belt could easily take mm. off in the sand belt here in Victoria. Um, and so even though they're an Australian native, they could still go feral mm. over here. There's mm. no reason why not. Um, so, you know, even things that are in the same geopolitical country doesn't mean that they can't go feral in some other part of the same country. So, yes, it's all a bit of a minefield, really. So there you go, techophilias. Okay. Okay. Uh, Just remind listeners, the the number, if you'd like to join us this morning, 94190155 to speak to Stephen or Virginia. And uh, while I remember... um, Penny Woodward was on the show last week and she did promise listeners that she would double-check on uh, the uh, information. She was talking about orange tomatoes and that there were three tomatoes uh, that we have in Australia that contain um, a form of lycopene, 
uh, which is uh, because not all orange tomatoes have this same lycopene, mm. and um, it's particularly beneficial um, health-wise. Uh, and uh, anyway, she's emailed me through with the names of the three um, tomatoes that are here in Australia and available. So if listeners are interested, if you want to write this down, and of course always have a paper and pencil if yes, you're listening. Yes, of course. Yes, exactly. So the three uh, in Australia are, would you believe one's called Kellogg's Breakfast? <laughs> what? <laughs> now, I know we talk about plant names a lot, but yeah. Kellogg's Breakfast, yeah. that is shocking. It's, it's terrible, isn't it? It's a dreadful name. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it doesn't sound health-giving. <laughs> no, it doesn't at all. <laughs> Anyway, and I hope it's not crunchy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, the other one is Aunt Gertie's Gold. That's well, that's almost a sillier name, <laughs> yes. although it's more fun. And the, the third one is Earl of Edgecombe. Oh, well, that sounds very posh. Earl it sounds historical. Edgecombe. 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 Yeah. Now, the seeds can be obtained from seed suppliers uh, of one or more of these three orange um Cis lycopene tomatoes. Uh, so the, the, the seed suppliers are Seed Freaks, which is seedfreaks.com.au, and the Freaks is F R E A K S. So seedfreaks, all one word, .com.au. Uh, it, you can also get them from the Lost Seed, which is the lostseed.com.au. And the third supplier is Tasmanian Natural Garlic and Tomatoes. And they are tngt.com.au. Uh, and Penny said, if anyone is interested in seeing all the research that's been done about these uh, particular tomatoes, uh, it's all written up at heritagefoodcrops.org.nz. Yeah. So heritagefoodcrops.org.nz. And you can have a look at all the research that's been done behind these uh, these uh, particular is, orange tomatoes. And what is lycopene good for? Uh, ask Penny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. that sounds like a reasonable thing to say. Yes, no, it's obviously really good for you because we don't know what it is. <laughs> no, read heritagefoodcrops.org.nz. Yes. Uh, you read the full, read mm. the full research and you'll um, yes, have you'll a lot understand. more knowledge yes, about you'll, it. You'll, you'll yes. understand it all. Uh, but I, yes, it does tend to point out that you know there's some good plants going under really awful mm. names. I uh, think the other, I think she was saying the other red tomatoes are just beta carotene that yeah. that gives the the red colouring, mm. whereas these orange ones um, have this um, lycopene mm. in it. So, yes. Question, question. Do you grow without notice? Without notice. <laughs> question without notice. I just uh, yesterday, Annie, um, Margie won a lapageria. Yes. Which I presume you grow. Yes. And sell. Yes, I certainly do. Do, yes. you, do you grow that just casually? Dumping no, it into the ground? No, not, no, not, no, no unfortunately, so. no. Lapageria is the Chilean bellflower, which is Chile's national floral emblem. And is beautiful. Is one of the world's great climbing plants. But like all aristocrats, in fact, it was named after one because it was named after Josephine, who was Josephine Le... Le Lapagere. Um, Empress by, Josephine. Yeah, yeah Empress Josephine by some sycophantic botanist. Um, <laughs> and um, so it has lots of, um, of regal connections. Um, and like most aristocrats, it's, it needs hothouse conditions. Well, it actually doesn't need hothouse conditions, but it needs to be, you know, uh, closeted and cared for. Uh, so it likes 
a spot where it gets plenty of light but no direct sunlight is best. Um, it likes an acid soil with lots of humus in it, so well-drained but very leafy soil. Um, it likes a fairly humid environment, um, so even syringing it with water during the summer is not a bad idea. And in fact, never plant it under a roof because if it doesn't get natural water on the foliage, it's an absolute martyr to spider mite. Mm. Um, so you need to keep the foliage damp. Um, Snails and slugs adore it, which I think is just getting back at Josephine personally. Um, so its new shoots and most of its growth, therefore, comes up from below ground level. Uh, and so the new shoots come up and overtop the previous ones, and that's how it, it grows bigger and bigger. It doesn't get huge amounts of growth off an already established shoot. And so, of course, if the snails and slugs keep mowing off the new shoots as they're coming up, which is when they're at their most... Um, uh, risk, uh, then you'll stunt the plant, so you've got to make sure that you keep slugs and snails away from them. Uh, they do grow quite well in pots, so a good quality potting mix in a shady aspect is possibly a good way to grow a lapiduria if your soil's not too good. Um, and they're not an overly fast-growing climber, so they'll last in a large pot for a long time. So I've seen them growing in pots with those sort of wire triangles or pyramids that people use to grow tomatoes up and other sundry things and they can look absolutely gorgeous um, but yeah they're, they're a climber that requires a little bit of care and attention mm. to grow it well and it's also slow to propagate and therefore is nearly always reasonably expensive to buy you're not going to buy a half decent lapidaria under about 60 bucks so they do have seed grown ones at um, Ferny Creek. Yeah, yeah. And so if you, if you buy a young seed grown one at one of the clubs like that, you probably will buy it reasonably cheaply. But the issue with seedling raised ones is you can't be sure of the colour. Although having said that, there's basically white and sort of cherry red are the two main colours it comes in. There are selected varieties with bicolours and, and different shades of pink and things. Um, but there's no such thing as an ugly lapidaria. So That's if you right. buy a seedling and you're not sure what you're getting, I mean, I've got some seedlings for sale at work, but they're nice, well-grown ones, but they haven't flowered yet, and they're labelled as either pink or red, but I or pink or white, but I can't promise that. Uh, I mean, they were raised off a pink one or raised off a white one, mm. and that's about as close <laughs> as I can go, because Lapidaria needs a cross-pollinator. So if you've got two plants that were propagated vegetatively from the same clone, they won't pollinate each other. So you need to have two different clones of white ones to cross to get white seedlings that are going to be fairly constantly white. There was white. a really huge one on the conifer nursery um, wire fence as you drive into Fernie Creek. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It was absolutely fabulous, but I think somebody's gone and chopped it down. It was oh. just... It, I mean, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Oh, one, most wonderful plant, and I always absolutely worry about stunning. them being at risk because when they're not in flower, <laughs> they're just a green viney thing. And to the uninitiated, they could look like something that's going to take over. Mm. And I have had people pull them out worried that their spoutings were going to get pulled off or whatever. Mm. And that's never going to... Yeah, well, exactly. I wouldn't <laughs> care. Um, I'd live without the spoutings and keep the lapidaria personally. Absolutely. But they are a beautiful climb and they're worth any effort. And, of course, I regularly get people from Chile coming into my nursery uh, who just get so excited when they see I've got lapidaria because it has a very, very important place in the hearts of Chileans. Um, uh, this kapiwi as it's known over there um, and so they all get very soppy about it when they see it although having said that they don't always <coughs> spend the money to buy one <laughs> but they do love to know that it's here and in, in Australia uh, and it is, it's an absolutely stunning climber and certainly a, a great 
plant to be the floral emblem of mm. their country because it is just an iconic plant. Mm. Fantastic. Okay, let's go to uh, Kay in Tullamarine. Good morning, Kay. Oh, hi. Good morning, guys. Um, I'm just um, ringing in regards to a peony mm. um, and was wondering when I can actually move it. I'd like to shift it if that's possible. And it's only probably a couple of years old mm. um, and hasn't actually flowered yet because I think it was fairly young when I purchased it. Yeah. Uh, all right. I think you've left your run too late. Okay. Most peonies are starting to move now. Yes, in fact, so I've got some showing buds already. Um, so I think you've left your run for this year a bit too late. Peonies okay. can shift, but they mm-hmm. don't actually love it. Um, uh-huh. So you want to try and, if it's a youngish plant, when you do shift it, you want to try and dig it out with as little disturbance as possible and as much root system as possible. Because okay. what happens with a peony when it's first planted or when it's shifted is it tends to sulk the first year after being shifted. And so it takes two years to really settle down and start doing its thing again. So okay. I would do it in midwinter. Midwinter, okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, because so I, I've certainly got peonies well and truly into active growth now. So, mm-hmm. uh, yes. do you, was it a tree peony or a herbaceous one? Uh, a tree peony. Yeah, all right. Well, tree peonies shift reasonably well. I've shifted quite large ones without any fear of them. Uh, okay. I'd still always use the seaweed um, extract when I shifted them. Uh, yep. I wouldn't feed them until they shoot away again in the spring, uh, mm-hmm. and then I'd start feeding. And they're quite gross feeders. You could sort of park a horse next to them, and they'd be perfectly happy about <laughs> that. Um, uh, so, you know, so give them plenty of feed. And when you do shift it, I would recommend a dose of dolomite lime as well for the first season of shifting. Uh, A lot of the growers tell you that you should lime your peonies heavily every year. I don't subscribe to that necessarily, uh, but they certainly seem to like a little bit of calcium uh, when they're first planted or shifted. But once they're settled in the ground, I've got a fairly acid soil where I am and the peonies are flourishing and I've never limed them. Your peonies are fabulous. Yeah, so so once once they're established, I wouldn't bother with any of that stuff. Uh, And for anybody else who's listening, if you are in suburban Melbourne, always go for the tree peonies uh, because they don't need the winter chill that the herbaceous peonies tend to need to flower. Or the new cross? The the Mm. itos, uh, I'm still, I think the, um, I'm told by Ronnie Bokel that they do flower well in Melbourne. Uh, I think the jury's still out uh, on the itos. Uh, Because they've got the blood of tree peonies in them, there's a very good chance that they, in fact, don't need that winter chill. But having said that, there's a whole range of hybrids and they've all been produced individually and some of them do tend to have more characteristics of one or the other, mm. which could then mean that it may be more about from variety to variety. So those varieties that have more seeming characteristics of herbaceous peonies may well be ones that still won't flower well in Melbourne, but I don't know. I really don't know. They haven't been And actually enough. nobody else knows yet. No, I don't no, think no, so. It's, too, it's, it's early st- days. It's still too early. They've only yeah. really been out on the market the last couple of years. Yes. Uh, and although Ronnie's been growing them superbly up at, um, up at Monbolk, uh, I mean, they're going to grow superbly up at Monbolk. So, you know, but he's, he maintains that they will, in fact, flower in Melbourne, and he may well be right. But I think that the jury's out. Mm. So there we go. So tree peonies are definitely the go, and they are just exquisite. I mean, it's one of the few plants I can think of that gets flowers that should be vulgar, uh, but aren't. You know, they're just so big, they should be, you know, like a dinner plate dahlia, and you go, oh, no, can't have those. That's hardly tasteful. Um, But peonies don't seem to matter how big they get. They are still the most beautiful things. I have got... They are. They're stunning. Mm. Yep. I have got a camellia that is 
so huge and so bright it's vulgar. Yeah, yeah. I think some, I think peonies and magnolias are probably two of the few genera of plants that it doesn't seem to matter how big their flowers get, they're still elegant. Uh, but some things just get bred beyond their beauty. And, uh, but peonies definitely not. Mm. Okay, Kay. Thank you very much for that. That's Later. a pleasure. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. That number again, if you'd like to join us this morning, we're running through until 9.15 and, of course, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Uh, the number, 94190155. We have Stephen Ryan from Dixoni Rare Plants and Virginia Haywood in the studio, so uh, do give us a call. Virginia, it's yeah, time we spoke Virginia's about... Virginia's got oodles of pretty flowers. Of all sorts of things. I went round yesterday and just picked things that were in flower and I have got a whole lot of... Um, of camellias. Yes, the pink one, the white one, and the red one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I've got, I've got red. It's got a real blue tinge to it, so it doesn't look very good in this studio because this studio is red as well. But it's absolutely beautiful in the garden. I've, I counted how many camellias I've got growing. Not different camellias, but just how just many. Com- I've got yeah. thirty-one plants. Goodness me, that's uh, a reasonable collection. It's quite a collection, yeah. and the the. Brushfield's yellow is just looking fabulous. Um, the weather's been kind to it so far because some of those pale ones can sort of brown very easily. Yes, I think that's largely the japonicas. Yeah. I don't have a lot. I mean, I do have japonicas, but I've, the, I've got William C.I. Yeah, which, they're a good group. Oh, they're a fantastic mm. group. Yeah. My William C.I.s are oh, 12 foot tall, yeah. facing straight west. So they get the north wind mm. in the middle of summer and they just mm. marched through the drought, Yep, covered in beautiful pale pink flowers. They do a lot of pink in the Williams C.I. Yes. hybrids, don't they? Shades but of pink. But it's a very, very pale pink, yeah. which, is, which is gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, and some of them are quite formal-looking flowers. Others are almost tulipy mm. with the petals sort of sitting outwards. Yes. Yes. Um, and there's something about the bushes. They're a slightly lighter bush. Is yes. that what I'm looking for, as opposed to the what stodginess ha- of some of the japonicas? Yes, they're, they're not nearly as stodgy because they've got saluensis in it. Yeah. And saluensis didn't get into Britain till the early 1900s. Yeah. And they bred the William C.I. and that was the first one that flowered further up north than Devon and, yeah. and Cornwall. Because one, the problem for camellias when they first came into Britain was they had to grow in... Oh, they had them in greenhouses. In greenhouses. Ah. They wouldn't flower. And the William C.I. was the one that did it. And so, and it was Mr. Williams down in Devon that did it. Mm -hmm. And of course, or was it Cornwall? I think it was Cornwall actually. And the thing about them here is they're so drought-hardy. Yeah, they are. They're wonderful. In Absolutely fact, fabulous. The Waterhouses bred several uh, Williams E.I. hybrids because there's E.G. Waterhouse yes. and Margaret Waterhouse. Uh, this is one of the Waterhouses. Yeah, and those were fantastic comedians, and I hope it's still out there being grown by the trade. Um, uh, I remember having a couple of the different Waterhouse ones in our old family nursery up on the top of the mountain, and we actually had a different problem with comedians up there. The Sasanquas and the Japonicas often took years to settle down in our soil and flower well. Mm. And I can remember mum was given uh, two or three camellias by a, a, a girlfriend for her 40th birthday, I think it was, or it might have been her 30th, I don't know. Anyhow, it was when mum was quite young, and they were biggish camellias that this girl gave her, and they sat in the ground for donkey's years before they started flowering because mm. we were so high up on the mountain. Um, but the Williams-Eye hybrids... Mm. 
They hit the ground running and they flowered. And I remember mum laying the axe against some of these japonica ones that she had. And I still remember one was an old cultivar called Odoratissima that if you stuck your nose in it really, really closely, it had a very faint fragrance. (laughs) Uh, And it was an informal double red. And it must have been 10 feet tall before it flowered. But once they started flowering, they did it every year and that was fine, but they just took so long to settle down and flower. And the Sasanquas were nearly as bad. They took years to flower. But the Williams eyes, they, poof, they mm. were out and flower in yeah. no time. I moved one of mine mm. and it, 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 this, it's just started. Six, seven years later, it's just started to flower. Yeah. And the j- only reason I've left it is because my garden's so big. It could just disappear and I could ignore it. Yeah, yeah. so because it wasn't it, taking up space that something more valuable could have yeah, had, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise it would have gone. Yeah, but so there look, you go. But I do think that camellias are underestimated as a... I mean, they and the Judas tree are the two things that just went through the drought happily. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Once camellias get their roots down, they're amazing. Mm. Uh, and, you know... A lot of other popular groups of plants, particularly those that were popular through the through the 40s, 50s and 60s, so um, roses, camellias, rhododendrons and azaleas, all, uh, all those sorts of things, a lot of the others didn't hold up. The roadies didn't hold up well during the millennial drought because uh, their roots are too shallow. Uh, even though really old rhododendrons often came through quite well, especially if they were old hardy hybrids. Uh, but camellias have come through everything and yeah we should be giving them a damn sight more respect and a lot of the small birds like them because they've, they've got good nectar sources. The honeybirds love yeah. them yeah, yeah. the honey so, eaters. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and they're very good glossy foliage through the year so um, you know they make a good solid sort of screening plant. Uh, they're not as fast growing as some things we use for screening so you've got to be a little bit more patient with them but once they're up there they don't grow so overly rapidly either. No you're not, you don't have to forever prune them. No. And and they just they're there. Yeah, I'd much rather see people using screens of camellias, particularly the Williamsy eyes, uh, than blasted old Potosperum James Sterling mm. and all that sort of stuff that people seem to be. And they make still wonderful throwing. hedges too. Oh, they really fantastic. do. Yeah. Yeah. And and so easy to manage. I mean you can trim them back, you can cut them back to a stump and they'll come away again. Yep. Uh, I remember seeing a talk once upon a time that a person did on camellias after bushfire and it was a tedious talk, I have to say. So if the person who gave the talk is happening to listen, I apologise about what I'm going to say now. But they had one of these PowerPoint presentations where um, it sort of faded from one picture to the next. But instead of it fading, they had it burning from one picture to the next. So they'd have a picture of the flower, then they'd have a picture of the bush, then they'd have a picture of this blackened pencil lead sticking up out of the ground, and then they'd have a picture of the regrowth of the camellia coming up afterwards. They only needed to do that once to, yes. pr- to prove the point. Yes. But they did it time and time again. I think it went for about three quarters of an hour. Oh. And it was probably one of the most tedious talks I've ever sat through in my life. But did the camellias survive the bushfires? Every single one of them came back again. And the only issue was that one or two of them were grafted reticulata camellias. So, of course, the understock came back. Uh, But in general, all of the camellias came back, and they quite literally were burnt to pencil lead sticking up out of the ground. You wouldn't think there was any chance. You'd think their roots would have been baked solid. Mm. Uh, You just wouldn't believe that they'd come back. In fact, some of them suck it up off the root system, out from the Mm. trunk. So particularly, funnily enough, the Williams eyes, they came up off the roots. And I have seen Williams eyes dug and moved and the roots left behind in the ground send up new plants. Good heavens. Fabulous. You know, so that's just how tough some of these camellias are. The reticulatus do tend to be difficult to find. Yeah, well, they've nearly always got to be grafted. They don't have a strong enough root system on their own roots. And unfortunately in this day and age, people can't see the value in spending an extra $10 
on what looks like the same sort of plant to the one that they can buy that was cut and grown. So they're not prepared to pay that extra money. It's the same with some of the older rhododendrons that are really hard to propagate. They had to be grafted, um, and people won't pay that extra money because they don't see it as being extra value. Um, But certainly it's extra work, and so the money should be there for it. And it's a bit unfortunate because reticulatas can be really remarkable-looking plants with their enormous big flowers on them, and they have a slightly lighter Yes, they're, they're, they're much more clearly a tree than a yeah. shrub. Yeah, they are, and, and they are quite breathtaking in flower. I mean, for me, great big lolly pink things are probably not something I'd go for in my own garden, and a lot of these things are great big lolly pink things. Except your peonies are lolly pink, some of them. Yeah, but they're not great big. <laughs> <laughs> the flowers are, but the plant isn't. Yes. Yeah, yes. Uh, and so something as dominant as a really big Captain Raw's reticulata camellia or something like that is probably not something I'd go out of my way to plant. But that's only because of my own taste. It's got nothing to do with the quality of and the plant. And I think to plant a reticulata, I mean, it is a tree, so you yeah. need more space. I have to say, anybody who in Melbourne, if you go for a wander around the botanic gardens at the moment there are so many camellias in Mm. flower and rhododendrons and I think it would be worth going up to the botanic gardens in Olinda as well Look, the early stuff will be out in flower up Mm. there now, Uh, so the early rhododendrons, what are we, yes you should have some of the giant leaf Timalayan rhododendrons pretty well in flower or coming out now, Mm. so those great big locust leaf rhododendrons, they're fantastic things for late winter, early spring Um, there'll certainly be any number of early hybrids like Christmas cheer and some of the early flowering hybrids will be in flower, and they should have camellias in flower up there by now Well our camellias in the botanic gardens are just looking fab, Mm. it's really worth looking at them at yeah. the moment mm-hmm. yeah yeah so yes yeah, so we should all be going out on a camellia expedition i think absolutely they're yeah. uh, they're a fabulous plant and they're exactly the sort of thing we were talking about before that go out of fashion mm. and they and you know people don't talk about camellias terribly much which i think is a real pity yeah. and and it's, it's interesting well when you talk fashion i can remember back in the 1960s just uh, uh you couldn't sell us a sasanqua camellia for quids because they weren't big and gaudy right you know, so we had Sasanquas in the nursery and hardly anybody bought them. And yet they were hardy, they were quick growing, uh, they made good espaliers. There was lots of things you could do with them. Um, in fact, some of them had lax con- sort of growth habits that could even make a semi-weeping standard. You know, mm. so there was a lot of things you could do with the Sasanqua camellia. But people wanted the japonicas and reticulatas. Mm. That's what they were after. They wanted the big, blousy ones. And now, of course, the sanquas are a real thing. And, you know, people are using them for screening and espaliering and, and all those and sorts of things. And they take more sun. And they take more sun than the japonicas. So they're, they're a very useful group of shrubs. And they're sort of autumn, early winter flowering, which I think is also fabulous because that is a bit of a blank period in the year. Well, one of the things about my camellias is the first one, which is, I don't know, 20 foot high. It was there mm. when I moved in. And it started flowering two months ago. Yeah. And I will still have camellias flowering in another month or two. Yeah, exactly. You right know, if, through so the if you plant a diff, you know, some japonicas, some reticulatas, some yep, Williamsiae, some sasanquas, you can have them flowering mm. for the whole, almost the whole yeah. of winter. And if they ever get their act together and start breeding with some of the camellias from northern Vietnam and southern China, like Camellia amplexa corlis, yes. it flowers off and on throughout the year. It doesn't mm. actually have a flowering period. And the yellow one is in bud in... Yeah. in um, yeah, the well, they, and they certainly need to use that in the breeding program because just imagine the apricot and orange mm-hmm. and things that you could create in camellias. I love that yellow one. It's got the mm. most amazing leaf. Yeah, it looks like Mr Sheen's being used. <laughs> it is so glossy and shiny. It is just beautiful. Uh, unfortunately, though, it doesn't flower up at Mount Macedon. 
we're too cold up there no, where well it'll it, live, it but it won't flower. It comes from the Vietnamese-Chinese border, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and it grows beautifully in Sydney and north. Mm. Um, so it's the, I think it's the camellia for the, the warm temperate to subtropical climates. It's absolutely fabulous. Mm. Uh, and it's good in Melbourne, but, yeah, we're, we're pushing it beyond its boundaries at Masseton, unfortunately. Yep. yep. So camellias, good. Okay. Um, Priscilla wants to know how to access uh, our gardening show on Facebook. Well, um, firstly, she's got to set up a Facebook account. Yeah, so if you've got a Facebook account, it's easy. You just go in and look for 3CR Gardening. Gardening show and click like like or follow and um, it'll all come up. But she... I, I occasionally have trouble getting different bits of it. She might be having trouble just getting the um, photos from today, although I have to admit I didn't put any up today. Naughty Virginia. But, uh, two weeks ago I put up all of the, which I still haven't talked about this time either, all of the salvias that yeah. I've got here. So if you go back two weeks, you can see myself. And you can go back. So yes, you can you go can back. They go stay back up through there the for feed a while. And, yep. and see what's what. But uh, I think once once you look for for it, look for it as a, as a new one. Yeah. Unlike it, you you will be able to find us and then bounce through what we've got and what we've had. Mm. Yep. Okay. And it does show up on Instagram too. Liz yes, it does up show up. Yeah, it's on Instagram. Well. And Instagram as well. is a very good place for people who like plants. Yeah, nice picturey things. Yes. yes. Yep. Okay, so next we're going to Julie out in North Bowen. Good morning, Julie. Hi there. It's lovely hearing you all talk about the camellias. I've got something a bit more boring to talk about. <laughs> but uh, we've been, I've had a peace lily growing inside um, quite happily, for goodness knows how long. Got a new cat who decided he wanted to eat the leaves, and oh I, I believe they're toxic. So uh, could it survive outside? I doubt it. Uh, it mm. might survive outside through the summer in a really shady, cool sort of area, a fernery or under a big tree. But I think the winters in Melbourne are still too cool for something like a peace lily to really cope. But if you put it out, Julie, for the next few months, yes. his lordship might then lose interest. <laughs> Uh, that might be a way of just, you know... You can't put it up somewhere higher yes, where the cat's less say. likely to find it. Well, given you uh, can go up a I've, curtain. No, I've thought about all those things. It's ra- in, in rather a large pot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Stick it out in the pot. Leave it out in the pot in a, very, in a cool, shady spot for the next, you know, until after Christmas. Yes. And when he'll be a bit older and see if he yes. has forgotten it. Well, that's, that's a good try. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I, look, I don't think they're going to survive well through a cold, damp Melbourne winter outdoors. Okay. So, All right. I uh, but having said that, that, if you've got one that's being munched to bits by the cat, um, it's not going to look any worse if it's munched to bit by the bits by the cold outside <laughs> either. So um, uh, you've got little to lose, so it's worth a try, I guess. All right. Thank you for your, for your advice. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Yes, aren't the indoor plant thing becoming a thing again? Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, yes, everybody's going it's nuts. It's gone on, crazy. Yeah, which is good. I mean, it's a way of people growing plants even if they don't have a garden. Well, that's uh, the point. So many people now are living in, in apartments mm. and they have no access to garden. Yeah, yeah. And, and I feel sorry for those people living in apartments considering what's going on at the moment too. Who'd want to buy an apartment? But, I mean, they've shown there, there are massive health benefits even from just having greenery surrounding yeah, you. Inside. Inside, mm. even in your office at work. Mm. Yes, so yeah. Um, by yeah, all so, means. Yeah, look, uh, I think it's a, it's a great thing that 
there's, this thing has come back again. I'm not quite sure about whether we should be planting more rubber trees in anodized pots, <laughs> uh, which I still have sort of nightmares about from you know way back when. Aspidestras in the corner. Yes, I don't mind <laughs> I the like aspidestra in the in yeah. the jardinier. I can live with that. <laughs> I remember going to uh, uh, get my hair cut at the barbers in Wood End when I was a very small child, and he had two big aspidestras in big old jardiniers. Um, and I think that the guys used to butt their cigarette butts out in them. Um, but, um, yeah, so I do quite like the aspidestras. But the thing that's got me giggling is the amount of money people will pay for a variegated monstera. <laughs> that is the thing, to get a variegated monstera. I've had quite a few people come into the nursery trying to source them. And this might be giving it away a bit, but I believe there is a wholesale grower out there somewhere who is building them up in huge quantities. So if, in fact, you're patient enough to wait for another year or two, um, they'll probably show up in Bunnings at a probably quite ridiculously low price in comparison to what people are paying for cuttings of the variegated monsteria as we speak over eBay and sundry other places. So, uh, yeah, be patient, and they're, they're going to be out there in huge quantities, and then everybody will be bored with them, and they'll move on. So, <laughs> so but no, I think the houseplant thing is a good thing. I mean, we should have, pl- have plants around us in every way, shape, and form that we can. Oh, absolutely. Yep. yep. Okay. Let's go to, uh, uh, let me see, Alice in East Keelor. Good morning, Alice. Uh, good morning, everybody. How are you? We're well, thank you. Good. Um, I have a query probably silly, but I'm going to try it anyway. I've got a couple of cymbidium orchids in different colours in single pots and a crucifix. What I'm wondering is, could I plant them all in one really large pot together? Uh, Look, the crucifix and the cymbidium orchids are both very tough and hardy orchids. Uh, They would probably both be happy with the same potting mix, but therein is the rub. I mean, some orchids like that really fibrousy open potting mix. Other orchids don't need as open a potting mix, so sometimes you have to adapt the potting mix for the specific orchid species. But I don't see any reason why cymbidiums and crucifix couldn't grow in the same pot in the same potting mix. Um, And because most of them grow as epiphytes... um, uh, in in nature, they don't have particularly big root systems either. So they're not going to strangle each other. Uh, in fact, they'll probably grow happily together. So, yes, I think the answer is yes. Um, and I don't see any reason why you shouldn't. Uh, and, in fact, you could make a rather lovely sort of landscape in a pot with the different mm. textures and forms and shapes and things. Um, so as long as there's enough room for both of the orchids to have space, uh, or three or four orchids, depending on mm. how many you're using, um, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't do it. And they like their roots a little bit crowded, don't they? Yeah, they do. They seem to flower better if they're not too mm. sort of open-spaced. Okay. So, you know, I think it's quite a practical idea, really. On is the it other possible hand, they will change colour. Sorry. No, no, go no, on. no. Whatever oh, the colour is that they are at the moment, they'll stay that colour. Uh, I mean, occasionally a plant will throw a sport, which is a genetic yeah. variation of a colour, uh, but that's in its genes, not how it's growing. Uh, and as far as I know, not many orchids throw sports, but camellias certainly throw sports, and azaleas will throw sports, and roses have been known to throw interesting sports as well. Uh, but that's got nothing to do with growing them together. It's just the fact that they have a propensity to do those things. Yeah. Um, so your orchids aren't going to change in characteristic at all. Oh, terrific, because I was thinking about it, and then I said, oh, 
maybe I'll alter something and make them become something else. No. But no. What about a Sydney rock orchid? Can I plant that outside in the ground or does that always need to be in a pot? Uh, I've seen them growing in the ground, but what people normally do is they modify the ground for them. So they build uh. up an area with perhaps some rocks and then they backfill it with some big chunky bits of pine bark and other sort of things that you would normally use in an orchid mix and then plant into that. I wouldn't put the Sydney rock orchid into unprepared Melbourne soil. You might Mm -hmm. get away with it in the sand belt, but you certainly wouldn't get away with it if you've got a heavyish clay soil. East Keelor, yeah. East Keelor, yeah. heavily, heavy-ish clay soil. <laughs> no, don't do it. So if you're okay. going to plant it out in the ground, make an artificial rock outcrop and yeah. backfill it with some really good open fibrousy stuff that the orchid would be happy in in a pot. And then it's sort of like growing it in a pot, but you're not. Oh, terrific. Thank you. I like that idea, actually. Yeah, now, it could work quite well. And it, it looks more natural that way. So it, yes. it's quite a nice way of growing them. I think that would look good, Alice. I'd Mm. go for that. Mm. Oh, thank you. Sounds like a good idea to me. And thanks about the other one too, because I'm going to do that today. Good. All right. (laughs) Enjoy. Thanks (laughs) Thanks for your help. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Um, Are you right? Yes. I was just reading the little note that came in. Yes, yes. Yes, Laurie in Kyneton was wondering whether I stocked at my nursery a shrub called Coralopsis sinensis which is a Chinese, they come and sometimes call it Chinese witch hazel, something like that, Chinese hazel. Um, it has a hazelnut-like leaf. It's a, a large shrub slash small tree, and it gets these little pendant pale yellow spikes of flowers on it in the late winter, and it's just lovely. Sounds gorgeous. It is a beautiful plant. It doesn't cope with howling northwesterlies on a 45-degree day, uh, so it's a Chinese woodland plant, so it does like you know semi-shaded, um, sheltered position. Uh, but in the right spot in a garden in Kyneton, it should be quite growable, um, as it is up at the mountain and around my area it grows really well up in the Dandenongs I've seen a few good ones in Melbourne sort of in easterly or southerly aspects in gardens so it can be grown but just got to find the right aspect for it and I have got some at work Uh, they're fairly advanced plants I can't remember what price I've got on them but I think they're in 12 inch buckets and probably a metre or more tall so they're quite large plants Uh, and they should be coming into bud at the moment I haven't looked at them recently but there should be flower buds on them at the moment Uh, so yes Laurie if you're looking for a Coralopsis sinensis I probably can help so there you go. That sounds positive. Yes. Yep. yep. Now also, uh, Ruth in Bentley East wants to know where she can buy peonies in Melbourne. Uh, anybody who gets them from Ronnie Bogle, uh, I, I certainly know Poynton's uh, in Essendon have them, but that's on the other side of Melbourne from her. She could almost come up to my place from there. Um, uh, I would be really surprised if some of the bigger good nurseries in Melbourne, uh, like Garden World and those sort of places. I was going to say, surely Garden yeah, World. Yeah, some where, of those where, places where will have Where is she? Bentley East. Bentley East, yes. Yeah, so I'd, I'd probably start with Garden World. Mm. Um, Just do a quick ring around. Yeah, a lot of those bigger nurseries around that side of town. Um, there's. Uh, but also make sure that you get a tree peony. Yes, yes, don't buy a herbaceous one. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would say Garden World would be my first place yes, I'd try. I think and I there's got to be some other good nurseries out the other side of Mount. I, I have to say I've sort of lost track on some of the nurseries out there but uh, you know is Banksia still going I mean it's a big nursery I don't know. Um, uh, there, there was a, any number of really good large garden centre slash nurseries on that sort of side of town at one stage yeah, and if so wants, many have if disappeared she want, though mm. if she wants to yeah. go out she could a bit uh, down to Mornington she could go to Diggers mm. true They'll, they're sure to have them but don't let anyone talk you into trying 
an or, a, a, a herbaceous peony because yeah. it won't work. Yeah, they very rarely will flower in Melbourne. You'll always get the odd person who says, but mine does. <laughs> you know, but that's the exception, not the rule. So, I mean, and also pe- East Bentley is, you know, it's really low and yeah. near the sea. Yeah. It's, mm. it's I mean, mild. People went to extremes, didn't they? They used to put blocks of ice around their uh, herbaceous peonies. And yeah, some people don't have a life. Trying to get them to flower. No, look, I think, you know, a bunch of peonies bought at the florist shop when they're in bloom is probably the best way to have herbaceous peonies at your place. Uh, you know, it's not and beyond the And the tree peonies are beautiful. Oh, I adore them. Oh, uh, they're gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, and and they go they go from great to better. You know, as years go by, they just get better every year. I mean, I I've got a big old herbace a uh, big old tree peony, I should say, outside the front gate of my nursery. It's been there thirty odd years, uh, and every year it comes out with thirty or forty huge, big, papery flowers <laughs> oh, on it. Wow! And it is just breathtaking. Mm. Um, and I don't do anything. To it. I don't feed it, I don't water it, I don't do anything. When we've had some of those really dry seasons, its leaves have all gone crispy by the end of summer. Next year it's still got 30 flowers on it. Um, so, you know, once they get their roots down and anchored well into the ground, your house could fall down and it could be an empty block for 20 years where nobody's done anything. It could be full of cooch grass and the tree peony will still be there. Yep. You know, everything else be gone, yep. but the tree peony can still be there. Yep. So, yeah, once they're well established, it's almost impossible to kill them. Fab. Mm. Yeah, so they're great plants. Okay, next we're going to Anne in Glen Iris. Good morning, Anne. Oh, hello, everyone. I just wanted to know if, if you can grow um, a cotton plant in Glen Iris, please. You mean it as and in commercial w- cotton? Um, well, it's a sort of a shrub. I've seen them in all the shops. No, the, the cut heads with the yes, fluffy white yes. cotton in it. That is commercial cotton. That's what you make T-shirts oh, out of. Because um, it, it would look, look so effective, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, except the plant itself garden. is not particularly attractive. You oh. know, so when, you, when you've got the, the, the seed heads in the florist shop with all their fluffy cotton in them, yes. they look fantastic. They uh, do. But the plant itself isn't a particularly beautiful plant. Uh, oh. And although it's possible you could grow it down here, it really does do far better in the warmer climates. I'd mm. grow a cottonus. Yes, yes, the smoke bush would the be. The smoke bush would, would be, a, be a lovely replacement. Oh no, yes, I've got a couple of those. Yeah, mm. yeah but true cotton, I don't think, is a good garden plant. Mm. And you've got to remember that it's basically treated as an annual as well so it's not something that is going to be a long-term shrub in your garden and right. think how far away we are from cubby station yes. well that is so true <laughs> yeah. yeah and cotton needs a lot of water apparently and it's also very prone to all sorts of insect attacks and one of the things people don't talk about so much i mean we're all going on about we shouldn't be growing cotton in australia because it requires so much watering but it also it requires vast amounts of insecticide Mm. Uh, to grow it en masse in a commercial way. I'm not so sure that that's a problem perhaps in a home garden where you've got a cotton plant, but Mm. certainly if you're going to grow cotton as a commercial crop, you've got to do a lot of spraying as well. And uh, so there's all those other side issues involved. I think, Anne, the general consensus is Is no. no. (laughs) It's it's a bit like herbaceous peonies. Buy a bunch of cotton when it's in in fluffy seed head and use it as as an indoor decoration. And in fact, it will dry. that's what I'll be doing. Yeah, it it can last as a dried flower thing for yonks. So, Mm. you know, I think the investment of buying a bunch of it is actually quite 
small. Uh, although, having said that, you're probably encouraging people to grow cotton, <laughs> which I'm discouraging people from doing. But anyhow, you know, uh, it does look good. You're right. I, uh, uh, our little group of horticultural artists up around the Macedon Ranges are actually painting cotton at the moment. And they're oh, having a great deal of fun. I was wondering painting. why you know so much about it. Ah, yeah. Well, see, this is the thing. Yes. Yeah, you know, sometimes you end up with an awful lot of interesting um, trivia and, and background information on something because you've come in from an odd angle. Yes. Um, and so because Craig is actually painting cotton at the moment, uh, I've sort of engaged with it a bit more because it is a really interesting and attractive thing. Uh, and for a floral work, it's fabulous. I'm going to go in and have a look today. Yes, <laughs> yes see if any florists. of the florists have got any cotton for sale. <laughs> I've it never is. considered cotton as a plant no, in any form. No, no, it is. It's beautiful and it will make a really interesting subject for botanical art because to paint that sort of the fluffiness, the fluff fluffy, yes. of white sort of like fairy floss in white is going to be really quite a challenge. Because we've is. got the seba in um, the botanic garden, yeah. so we get the, the kapok. Yes. Ah, oh, yes, and the... the when that comes out, you know, that's just, again, so fluffy. So do you run around and collect it all for cushions? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's too high. Yes. All right. So I hope that sort of answers your question, even if it might be slightly over negative. Even, yes, if, if it wasn't the answer I wanted. <laughs> yes. At least it's an answer. <laughs> yes, that's right. Thank you very much for that, all okay. of you. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Virginia, we can actually... Oh, yeah, let's talk about some salvias. You bought a whole pile of gorgeous, gorgeous salvias. We didn't get to them last time. I do have a lot of salvias, and I know that I'm known for always talking about salvias, but just... But that's because you're an old sage. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. um, But a disordered one. Yes. I have got so many salvias out at the moment, and most of them are about five or six foot tall. So they're all biggish plants. They're the biggish ones with yep. big leaves. Mm. And I used to prune them, but I've now got so much to prune, I don't prune them always. So mm. I prune them every couple of years, which means they get bigger and bigger. And they, but they, are, still, they don't get rangy if you don't prune them every year? I find as long as I prune them every three or four, that's enough. They're fine. Yeah, yes. oh, that's an interesting. I, I find the Mexican daisy. I think I have to prune yeah. every year because it it will grow. Now, what that Mexican daisy must grow twenty foot in a year. Oh yeah, the mm. Montanoa. Mm. So I do prune that every year, but the, I'm not pruning the big salvias and pink icicles, which is almost the biggest of the flower amongst them. It does get does have to be pruned because it's falling over. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just falling over everywhere at the moment. Yeah. But it's got such big flowers, and I look out the kitchen window, and there's pink icicles just falling over everything, and it looks absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, so and you I, can forgive it. And I've got a water bowl near us, and the little birds, the combination of the pink icicles to be in, yeah. and the pyrus that's also just near it, they, they're very happy there, so I can just, you know, sit there frying an egg, looking out and having a ball. Do the birds notice you're frying an egg? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well well pointed. Yes. (laughs) Totally inappropriate. Yes, 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 it's their babies. (laughs) (laughs) No, these are very little birds. Yeah, dear. But the pink icicles, and the the Tim Boone is one of the other ones. Yeah, that's one I've got in the garden at home, Tim Boone, and it's stunning. It is a really, really... That wonderful dark magenta yeah. colour, I find that really alluring. Actually, if, I don't know whether yours does it, but mine in the garden at home, when most winters it gets a little bit cold fried, 
but the leaves, when they're going off, they get this sort of burgundy patching in the leaves, yes, which is almost is the same colour as the flowers. Mm. And I find that really appealing. Yes. And uh, one of its parents is Karwinskii, Tim Boone, because Tim Boone occurred at, at Tim Boone. in Tim Boone. Yeah. Yes, so that's why it's called Tim Boone. Mm. And it was in Volucrata and Karwinskii. And I've got Karwinskii and flower just near it. So I've got these, all these different big pink and different shades of pink in the salvias, and they are just looking absolutely fabulous. And if people are looking for those plants, the salvia study group uh, are regularly at some of our big plant markets, including the Mount Macedon Garden Lovers Fair on the first weekend in October, hint, 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 Mm. Uh, uh, because some of these plants are not that regularly available through the general nurseries because they're exactly what you were talking about before. Mm. They don't present well in pots. Yes, Uh, yes, right. And so you just have this thing with leaves on it, and it's generally a sort of a twiggy, sort of upright-looking plant with no particular merit, it would seem. And it isn't until you see them in somewhere like Virginia's Garden as this billowing great mass of flowers in the middle of winter, and you go, oh, my God, I should have that in the garden. Mm. So if you go to one of the fairs, so uh, the Mount Macedon one, certainly I'm sure the Sylvia Study Group's coming to, and there's probably others around that they'll be at. That's the place to get the vast majority of the interesting Sylvias from because they grow them for a passion, not because they're commercially interested in a sense. So they keep a lot of these plants going, whereas the general nurseries don't stock them. And you can find the Salvia Study Group at salvia.org.au if you want to find out what... You might want to be a member. You could be a member, indeed. Yeah, I'm sure they'd be very happy to welcome new members, as most specialist societies are. Um, But certainly if you want to get the plants, uh, Mount Macedon's probably the next... Possible event. The next show that's coming yeah, up. That's coming yes. up. And, then there'll and be others if a bit you came later. in asking for Tim Boons and Pink Icicles, I'm sure they'd be very pleased to mm. see you. Mm. And they'd probably have five others they could suggest to you that you should buy as well. Well, I've got another absolutely huge one called Tequila, which is the. It, it's bright red. Yes, it's with brilliant. black. Oh, yes, yes, the black calyx on it, yes. And it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, yes. I unfortunately lost that one. I found it a bit too cold sensitive for up at Macedon. Oh, okay. I'll yeah, I probably should try again because I, I, yeah, because I, I love the I'll colour comp because that's I'm always pulling it out and yeah. it just comes back. All right, I'd love another piece to have another mm. crack at it. Mm. I'll find a slightly more sheltered site because that colour really, oh, it's really pushes my boat. I well, think it's beautiful. And you wouldn't want it in the heat. Mm. You wouldn't want it in the middle of summer. It'd just be too hot. It's yeah. such a hot, hot colour. Mm. Yeah, but it's fabulous at this time of year when mm. you're cold. And that's the thing with, with pinks you know i mean they're slightly warming aren't they yes some of the very strong pinks are very good at this time of year but definitely not so wonderful in the middle of heat yes which is when you want your blues and your whites yes the softer cooler Mm. colors cooler colors Stephen, we've just got time for a quick mention of your other plants yes just quickly uh the other thing on the facebook page i've got up at the moment is russian borage Trachystemon orientalis. If you're looking for something with big, interesting leaves that may be an alternative to a hosta, for instance, sake, uh, then Trachystemon could be worth looking at. It doesn't get knocked about by the slugs and snails like a hosta does. It comes up earlier, so it doesn't leave a bare patch as long. It has lovely blue and white curly petaled flowers that are borage-like. It is actually in the same family, so they are related. The bees and early insects think it's fantastic. Uh, And it will build itself out into quite large clumps in a semi-shaded to shaded aspect. And once it's established, it's not particularly water-hungry. I mean, it will flag in really hot weather if it's dry at the roots. Um, And I've actually had it burnt by hot weather, and I've just cut it off at the ground. 
and it's actually come back again in the same season once I've introduced a bit of water to it. Okay. Um, and I think trachystemon is a fantastic plant. So it's, it's just one of those things that you don't see around much. There's a lot of it in our old gardens up at Mount Macedon. It was obviously popular back in the 1920s or something, and it's just naturalised in some of our gardens up there. And is it good for the compost? I have no reason to believe it wouldn't be. Nearly anything in the Borogenaceous family, if you put it's it good. into the compost, so your forget-me-nots, your borage, your comfrey, your trachystemon, all those plants, if you pick the leaves and throw them into your compost heap, it will in fact help to stimulate compost. Mm. So it could be useful that way. And I don't know what it is about it, but comfrey and trachystemon, my corgis love them. Every time I take them for a walk, they go through the front garden and they grab a leaf as they're going through and they chew it up and walk out the driveway uh, having a lovely chew on either comfrey or trachystemon. And they seem to love it and it doesn't seem to do them any harm. Well, there was a really funny problem with um, comfrey at one stage because people were recommending it because it's known as knit bone in the old herbalist section. And, of course, they said, oh, it's poisonous. Well, of course, if you concentrate, concentrate and inject it, it is poisonous. But by the leaf, no, it's not. And if you use it as a poultice, which is the way to be using it, It certainly isn't. Yeah, so trachystemon, and quickly, I, uh, we did the mention pyrus. this plant in a way. Uh, Virginia talked about it. Pyrus, the lily of the valley trees or shrubs, they're coming out now. This they're is gorgeous. Lovely love things them. with the little dainty sprays of yep. lily of the valley type flowers. The one I bought in this morning is a hybrid called Dorothy Wickoff, uh, which has basically white flowers, but it has pink stems and, and pink calyxes. So you've got this sort of pink and white combination. And there's rich pink, mid pink pure white, some that have variegated leaves, some that have bright red new growth. Uh, Pyruses are a wonderful group of shrubs for the not too hot and dry spot. Uh, uh, But mine is facing west and gets the northwest wind all summer and it just goes, I mean it is old. Yeah, I was going to say, once they get really well established they'll probably cope with nearly anything but I wouldn't want to start a young one off like that. Mm. Um, So, and they make great pot plants, so consider them as pot plants as well uh, because their foliage is pleasant all year round, their flowers last for a long time and if it's one that gets the really pretty new growth on it well there's another added bonus to them and you can get dwarf ones all that stuff so there you go Pyrrhus we've covered everything well done okay that is our lot for uh, this week we will of course be back again next Sunday at 7.30 big thank you to the team particularly to Robin who's been handling all the phones this morning but uh, tune in next Sunday morning at 7.30 till then bye for now You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.